0: Father, those are such tremendous, tremendous words to say that all we have is Christ, that you, Christ, are our life. Our life is hidden with you. And we were indeed those who were destined in our own rebellion and our own sin by nature children of the wrath to condemnation and judgment. But it is your eternal love that invaded our lives, that opened up to us your glory, our sin, and the wonder of redemption in your Son forgiveness of that sin life in him hope promises that will certainly come true and be a reality for us because they are guaranteed in the death and the resurrection of Christ so help us to delight in these things i pray that the that chorus would be the anthem of our hearts as we uh, live each day putting to death the deeds of the flesh and renewing our minds and growing in our love and communion with you through your dear son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's uh, good to be back with you. We miss Ted. Of course, Ted's out in Colorado Springs right now with Dina. I hope you've been praying for him. I'm sure that some of y'all have uh, been in contact with him. Things are going well, as last report I had, anyway. I think uh, we texted a little bit yesterday. So continue to pray for them. They'll be out there. Let's see, they left on Thursday, so I think they'll be gone next week as well. Yeah, because he's preaching uh, two Sundays. So there's a lot of meetings that they've had. I think he said there were 14 meetings set up uh, with different people from the church. And so they're certainly busy. um, But pray that God would uh, give them wisdom. Pray, Ted asked particularly for prayer that he would have wisdom and discernment in asking the right questions as he interacts with everyone. So pray for him uh, in that way too. And for those of you who know Joe, he's uh, home with Amy uh, today. he's got a hundred and two fever, so uh, he's not feeling too good. She could have wheeled him out and he could have listened in the hall or something, but I guess he wasn't willing to do that. but anyway, we'll forgive them. so pray for them uh, as well. Well, as you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago before uh, Ted was uh, bringing us out of uh, messages out of Luke chapter seven and James the Book of James that. We're going to take a period of time and before we begin a new book, what will we'll be planted for however long we're there, uh, we're going to take some time to look at some particular issues in the church. These are going to be topical messages and hopefully as topical messages will still be expositional messages. Those, there's not an uh, antithesis there. It can be a, a topical and expositional at the same time. Exposition just means essentially that you are explaining each verse rightly in its context. Um, So we're hopefully going to do that as we look at some specific topics. And actually, as I met with the deacons last week, there were like so many topics coming out that I thought, man, we may be doing this for a long time. We'll just trust the Spirit will lead us as we seek to do whatever's best for His church and cover the things that He wants us to cover. Uh, We're going to begin this week, and it'll be this week and next week, uh, looking at body life in a particular area, namely the loving confrontation of sin. So, this morning I'm going to give just a broad overview of the topic, and then we'll look at some more specific principles uh, next week. But the confrontation of sin, and not only the confrontation of sin, but it's very important to put that little word in first, the loving confrontation of sin, the humble confrontation of sin, but nonetheless, the confrontation of sin that we need to exercise as a body of believers we do that, and in a lot of cases that gets done well, and in a lot of cases it does not get done well. Uh, and even worse, in a lot of cases it's neglected when it should be done. So this is an extremely important part of our life together as God's people, as Christians. And yet I think it's fair to say, we would all say, whoever, any of us who have been a part of it, rather in giving and receiving or both, that it is one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life. It's hard. It's hard to go to somebody and to point out sin. And we'll we'll talk about reasons why that's hard. I think we know them, but we'll be reminded of them uh, next week. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Nobody wants to take that hard step, even when we know at times that we should. And even when it's so clear, and we do, we do it with much fear and nervousness, uh, even more than we would in sharing the gospel in hard situations. That might be easier for some to receive whatever Persecution comes from that than it is actually to go to our brother and sister and humbly and lovingly come alongside them in a matter of sin. I think maybe I could speak, I can speak for myself, and I think maybe it would be true for many of y'all that some of the most important and impactful and life changing uh, moments in my life in terms of spiritual growth have been when somebody has come and said something to me. ...about sin or the appearance of sin or, or something like that in my own life. And I've so appreciated, appreciated them for that. When we go to somebody and we confront sin... ...it takes an extreme measure of vulnerability and humility. We're essentially opening ourselves up for their displeasure... ...for their accusations, for their anger or whatever else might come from it. Those are at least the kind of fears usually that keep us from doing it. But I would assert... That our ability to deal with sin as the people of God with each other, among each other, in a loving, Christ-honoring, unifying way is an essential aspect to our spiritual growth. Personally as individuals and as a body of believers. Now, I wanted to begin, as well as I was thinking about this, it became clear that maybe a helpful way to begin is to remind us of the distinction between what Scripture forbids and what Scripture commands, namely the distinction between sinful judging one another and that of actually lovingly confronting one another. There are points of similarity with those and yet absolutely crucial distinctions. One is a matter of obedience and one is a matter of sin, However, the two are very often easily confused. So as I mentioned earlier, I'll introduce the topic broadly this morning by looking at Matthew 7, 1 through 6, a passage that we're familiar with, but we're going to look at it and just remind ourselves of some general principles that warn us against judging one another while at the same time encouraging us to lovingly be involved with one another's life in addressing sin. So, there's three general points that I'll make this morning, and I'll repeat them. One is this, that it is a sin to judge, but it is not a sin to point out sin and error. Secondly, that sinful judging is both wrong and foolish. And thirdly, that we must confront sin in humble and discerning love. So, those are three general broad points that we'll talk about. Let me begin by reading Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and again, this isn't a... A full-on exposition. When we covered it the first time, we spent two weeks, but we're just going to look at it a bit more broadly this morning. But read it with me first, and then we'll swing back around and look at those three principles. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or can you say, or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underneath their feet and turn. And tear you to pieces. And here is one of the most well known passages in all of Scripture on the issue of judging, and yet encompassed within the rebuke or the warning is the principle also of confronting sin. We need to do that as the people of God. Let me just note the first point then here. Namely, that it is a sin to judge, but it's not a sin to point out sin and error. You could even say it more strongly, as I already intimated. First, this, that it is a sin to judge condemningly, but it is is loving to point out sin and error. So while it is sin to judge and condemn in the way that Christ is here forbidding, it is a matter of obedience to lovingly point out sin in another's life. So confronting sin in a brother or sister's life is not violating Jesus' command, do not judge, although it could violate that command, and that's where it comes down to the issue of motive, which Jesus is, in part, going to deal with. Now, we know that this passage is one of the most misused, and this command is one of the most twisted and distorted and misused passages in all of Scripture, do not judge, do not judge. He is, of course, not forbidding all judgment, but that is how the world often wants to use it. And very often when it's used that way, it's really little more than a cover-up for personal sin. And we know this. Essentially, when somebody says, do not judge me, they're saying this, don't say that I'm wrong and I won't say that you're wrong and we can both do what what we want to do with a clear conscience. You don't convict me of my sin, I won't convict you of your sin, you stay silent about what's wrong in my life, I'll stay silent about what's wrong in your life, and then we can both merely go along our way happily with no conviction, no sense of accountability to others. Or worse, sometimes the world or even those who profess the name of Christ think of God in that way. God isn't judgmental. God just is always just so, I mean, he's just so loving and patient with me just as I am. I mean, every day. I sin every day and and he just keeps loving me. And there is obviously one of the great glorious truths of the gospel that's inherent in that, that is absolutely right. But very often that is used as an excuse rather to not take sin seriously. To feel comfortable in disobedience. To feel comfortable in a disobedient attitude and disobedient actions. Well, God will just forgive me. It's akin, although there is a distinction to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. Well, shall grace continue to abound if we sin? It's a wrong view of grace. It's a wrong view of the cost of grace as well. So Jesus isn't saying any of those things. He's not saying that do not judge, that you should never point out sin or error. He's not saying that God is just a big grandfather lovingly kind of old man who's deity in the sky who never really judges any of his children but only has compassion towards them even as they continue in patterns of sin. That's clearly not the case. Scripture will not allow us to think that way uh, in any way. And, And again, I think we're well familiar with that. Let me just remind you of a couple of passages, lest it seem like I'm making that up. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. There is an ultimate judgment that is in store for those who remain hardened in unbelief. Acts 17.31, He has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Even God's children are judged by God. Not eternally, that judgment has been taken on the cross. Christ has borne the eternal wrath for our sin, but we are judged and disciplined by God as our fathers. As a matter of fact, first Peter says, "If we dress as Father, the one who impartially judges each person according to his work." First Corinthians 11 reminds us that there are some who were sick. There were some even whom the Lord had put to death because of their sin and because of their sinful treatment of the Lord's table, failing to make it a demonstration of love. And of course Hebrews 12 reminds us that he disciplines the one whom he loves. God has even established in government a means of judgment. Romans 14 reminds us that the government does not bear the sword for nothing. God has established judgment even in human affairs through Government And, of course, that's misused by wickedness oftentimes, but nonetheless, it is meant by God for good, for good, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And God commands His children to confront sin in one another. That's, we'll look at that more next week. But Matthew 18 says this very familiarly. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, you take two, and then you eventually tell the church. That is a command of the Lord. We are to do that. It is for his glory and the good of those who are in the church. So we are to judge and we are to make distinctions and we are to confront sin and error. The prohibition here against judging then is not a blanket prohibition against pointing out sin. But he is prohibiting harsh legalistic censorship that is Rules-oriented rather than love-oriented, that is law-oriented rather than love-oriented. He is rejecting that and calling that sin. It is here a prohibition of the critical and condemning confrontation that's done out of a sense of anger or a sense of self-righteousness or a sense of retribution or getting back or whatever else. That kind of rebuke he is absolutely forbidding. The kind that comes from the heart mentioned by the leader in Luke 18.9. He says there were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they viewed others with contempt. That sort of contemptuous judging. Looking down on. That obviously is what the Lord is forbidding. And it is precisely the opposite attitude that should mark those who are in the kingdom. Which Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with in chapter 5. That those who are in the kingdom... "...are what, first of all? Poor in spirit. And they are merciful. Merciful. That's what should mark those in the kingdom." Of course, that was exactly the opposite of the environment of religious hypocrisy that defined much of first century Judaism. Let me just consider this a little bit more or together and look at a couple examples of what the Lord is addressing Uh, In John chapter 8, there is probably one of the most well-known examples of this. John chapter 8, if you'll remember, is when the leaders, the Jewish leaders, brought a woman who was caught in adultery, in fact, in the very act of adultery. They caught her. They gathered her forcefully, took her in sort of a mob-like mentality, brought her to Jesus, threw her essentially before him encircled her, and then sought to bring a condemnation against her. John says this, that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded; he has commanded us to stone such a woman. And I have no doubt that had Jesus sided with them, They would have been more than happy at that moment to pick up stones and to stone her to death. Something they wanted to do with Jesus more than once. And so here they are, these religious leaders, bringing this woman in really an act of violent condemnation. Now, the reason that they're bringing her, the reason that that's... in the, where it is in Scripture, is because their intention, obviously, and the main point was to trap Jesus. They were, they were seeking to bring a charge against Jesus, something that they tried to do many times in His ministry. But their justification for doing what they did was the idea that she was a sinner who deserves to die. And so they felt justified in bringing her out of a sense of their own superior righteousness. As a matter of fact, that is the very thing that Jesus addresses in their heart. If you'll remember, his response to these leaders was this. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, was she guilty? Of course she was guilty. Would it have been just if she had been stoned? Well... Yes, that was a sin punishable by death. But that wasn't the point that Jesus was addressing. There was actually a principle greater than her legal guilt that Jesus was impressing upon them. See, they were legalists. They dealt solely on the basis of law and not out of love. That's why they never knew God. Jesus says, I know you. You do not have the love of God within yourself. And this is what he's demonstrating to them. And so he says, let the first of you without sin cast the first stone. And he showed this woman such great mercy, great mercy. And no doubt the implication is that she was thankful and we trust maybe even came to believe on him as the Messiah. But the point here is that this is the kind of sinful judging and for confrontation that Jesus is here condemning. Condemning that kind of confrontation that goes with a high estimation of one's own personal righteousness that feels a sense of justification in condemning someone else for their unrighteousness, whether real or perceived. That's the thing that he's condemning. I'll just mention this. In John 17, or in 715, there's another example of this where Nicodemus was speaking to the leaders who were desiring to arrest Jesus. And he says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? I mention that because they had such hatred and anger to Jesus. They were judging him and condemning him so harshly because he confronted their system. He exposed their sin. And as we know that when darkness is exposed by light, it hates the light. It hates the light and wants to put that light out. And so here that's just an example of them hating Jesus and even going against the law and the, the stipulations of their law to first try him and find out from him his own guilt, but instead they just wanted to get him off of the scene. Now let me do this. Let me help us even unfold this a little bit more. And so I want to look at it first negatively before we look at it positively. And let me give you at least five Five ways that there are five kinds of wrong judging that are mentioned in Scripture. Five ways that we wrongly judge one another. And so again, this is the negative side. We'll look at the positive side later. We'll even mention it at the end this morning as we come into the Lord's table. But let me mention to you five ways that, there are, that we wrongly judge one another and that we do, in fact, sin against this command of the Lord Jesus not to judge, not to judge. The first one is this, is that it is a sin to judge another person's motives. It's a sin to judge another person's motives. It's a sin to make assumptions about why somebody is doing something without having explicit knowledge first. This is, of course, most clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says in verse four or chapter 4, verse 1, Let a, regard, a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And then he says this, Which actually, to me personally, is uh, very often a great source of comfort, this statement by Paul next. He says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So first of all, Paul's simply saying, he's not saying he's without sin, he is saying whatever sin that he may have... As much as his conscience bears witness against him, he has confessed that to the Lord and he's walking righteously and uprightly before him. He's saying, I know of no hidden sin, no secret sin, and actually he'll mention that later in Corinthians, that is against myself. I'm not harboring anything illicit. My motives, as far as I can discern them, but even I can't discern them perfectly, are right and true. They're honoring to the Lord. And the reason, as you can imagine, for you that may give much comfort, or often for us, is that, look, if we have a clear conscience, it means very little to me what else somebody says by way of accusation. If my conscience is clear before the Lord, if my conscience is not clear, well, then obviously it's very disturbing. And there is all the anxiety that can come with that. But if my conscience is clear with the Lord, it frankly is a very small thing what somebody else accuses me of. And that's what Paul is saying here. But then he goes on and he points out... The error of the Corinthians in doing just that very thing, accusing his motives. He says in verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So essentially, Paul is reminding them of saying, Look, I don't even know my own self perfectly. That kind of reflects the attitude of David in the Psalms where he says, you know, search me and know my heart. See if there's any hurtful way in me. But he's saying, if you can't even know, if I as an apostle can't even know my heart right, how in the world could we assume to know what's going on in somebody else's heart? That we would feel the right to be able to condemn their motives. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't condemn motives. God is the one who will do that. The one who has perfect knowledge of all men. The one who will bring all things to light at the proper time and in that day. But until then, you simply don't know. I simply don't know. We must guard against the sin of judging motives. As a matter of fact, one has captured the idea here well. One commentator, Leon Morris, he says this. Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race in which a profound ignorance of oneself is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, especially about their faults. He captured the idea well. And this, of course, is exactly the opposite of what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13, that love believes all things. And that means essentially or basically this, that the posture of the Christian heart and the posture that we should have toward one another, the attitude that we should have is first to believe the best and not the worst. To believe what is best about their intentions, to believe what is best about their motives, not to assume the worst and then condemn them for that. When a motive is assumed to be wrong, then it is necessary to talk to that person if you're genuinely concerned and ask them, or simply to cover it in love. Now, we do this often in so many ways, so many ways, where we condemn based on our own assumptions of what that person intended to do by their actions, or what they, in fact, are intending by what they do. As many examples could be given, one that came to my mind is this. We do this in kind of Christian world, in this way, if someone preaches in a Hawaiian shirt and jeans, then we just assume they must have a low view of God. They must have a low view of God. They must not honor his word. Look at how he gets up there. He's not in a suit and a tie. Therefore, I could not attend that church. Do we do that? That fits actually as an illustration for something we'll mention later about judge with righteous judgment. But I put it here, so that's where we'll put it. We can we make these kind of superficial judgments. We're, we're all of a sudden condemning that person in their view of God, their view of the Word of God, and their love for Christ based merely on something as how they dress for a worship service. Could they have a low view of God? They may or they may not. I don't know. I know some that may have a higher view of God than I do who dress that way and have very successful ministries in the gospel. The point is is that that's an example of judging motives. If someone is wealthy, sometimes our automatic posture of heart is they're probably not very spiritual. They probably love their money more than they should. You know, look at this big house and the things that they have. And we know that wealth and the love of money is the root of all evil. We make those kind of judgments all of the time. All of the time where we assume motives and we assume the spiritual condition of someone This is very often what is behind gossip. Gossip, right? What is gossip? Gossip is our little private conversation sometimes that we have with one another where we criticize someone else. And we criticize them for either something that they did, something that they're wearing, something that they're not doing. And very often and inevitably it involves some kind of critique of their motive and their inward life. And that's sin. And that kind of judging is sin. And we should not do that. The remedies, again, as I mentioned, are this, practice assuming the best rather than the worst, engage that person in real conversation, and ask them questions that will help you to understand where they're coming from, and then if something is wrong, gently address it. Okay, I've got to go a little faster here. Uh, Secondly, what's another wrong kind of judging? A wrong kind of judging is this, is when we judge one another for things that are not explicit in Scripture as either commands or prohibitions. When we judge one another and we condemn another person or other Christians for things that are not explicitly commanded or prohibited in Scripture, One example of this, uh, not surprisingly, comes from the Gospels and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. but he says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 20, uh, he says this, "Well, and what he's doing is he's, he's addressing the pharisaical a hypocrisy here in judging him. He calls them hypocrites. That's his word, not mine. Uh, because they were condemning him for not washing his hands before a meal. That was something that was there according to their tradition. It was not according to a command of God. And so he says, stop looking at these superficial things and stop judging. He says, real sin isn't a matter of these outward things. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what's going on on the inside. And this is at the very heart of legalism. Legalism is essentially this when it's elevating preferences, opinions, or general guidelines to the level of righteousness and sin. It's when we take a particular application of scripture and we elevate it to the level of righteousness or sin. You don't bring your family and your kids to a worship service with the gathered people of God, you put them in nursery. That's sin. You are unrighteous. You're not understanding the role of the family and the headship of the father. Uh, There's those kind of things all the time that go where we condemn one another. We elevate something to the level of righteousness or personal conviction to the level of righteousness and sin. And then it's holding these standards with an attitude of harshness, superiority, and condemnation. You do these things that I don't do because I call them sin... And therefore, you are lesser in your spirituality than I am. Again, we have a thousand different ways that we can do this. We do this with the music people listen to and the kind of music that goes on in church. We do this with the way that people dress, with sort of external kind of judgments, with you know, how they wear their hair, the color of it or the colors of it. You know, jewelry and those kind of things. We we do that all of the time, a thousand different ways. Well, well, I wouldn't do that. That's not, certainly not how I think you should honor Jesus by getting a tattoo or wearing some kind of inappropriate earring that you know makes a big hole in your ear or whatever, which doesn't look appealing. And maybe there are bad motives, but it's not sin necessarily. It's not. And so we we sinfully judge one another when we start elevating our own applications of Scripture, right or wrong, but they're not God's applications, specific applications to the level of righteousness and the level of sin. A third way that we do this wrongfully judge one another is this, when we judge a person's spirituality because they differ on points of non-essential doctrine or practice, We judge a person's spirituality or a whole group of people's spirituality because they differ with us on non-essential doctrines or practice. Am I making that one up? No, Paul addresses that quite extensively in Romans 14. We won't have time to read the whole thing, but he says this, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith... But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And it's for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord, both of the dead of living. So he says, then why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then, I'm skipping a verse, but so then each one will give an account for God. Each one of us will give an account to God. What's always fascinated me about that passage particularly, what's always stood out to me is this, of how different God's estimations are than our own. No doubt, each one in this group, those who were strong in faith, those who were weak in faith, those who honored certain days and those who said those days did not need to be honored. And of course, this is in a, a context largely of the Jewish honoring of certain festival days and so forth. What's always fascinating about that is here each of them in a the supposed concerned for obedience and honor to the Lord are worried about all of these things and God's not concerned about them. God's not. What is God concerned about in this passage? Well, he mentions it at the very end. He says this, the faith you have is your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So essentially, the argument that through Paul God is making is that If someone is sincerely seeking to honor the Lord in their faith, God accepts them. Christ who died for them accepts them. And he accepts their action even though it may be weak from faith, from weak faith. He accepts it and, get this, he's honored by it. In fact, he's honored by it even more than the other who might have greater faith. It's totally opposite of the way that we think. And so Paul's admonition here, which is in line with what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 7, is don't judge another person's spirituality because they might do things differently or see things differently than you do. Don't judge them as a lesser Christian. Don't judge them as one to receive your condemnation. But if God accepts them, then we are to accept them and accept their faith. That doesn't mean you can't have conversations about it. That doesn't mean you don't talk about those things. It means we hold our positions with an attitude of generosity toward one another and toward other Christians. That's what he's talking about. We don't judge them and we don't condemn them. It doesn't mean that they love Christ any less. It simply doesn't. This can happen, again, in a a variety of ways, but it happens a lot in our particular circles when somebody holds a different doctrinal position. Again, we're not talking about the gospel of grace. We're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about those kind of things. We're talking about they hold maybe different doctrinal positions on some non-essentials, not unimportant, but non-essential elements of the faith. We can do that sometimes with charismatic brethren. There's plenty that we would say that we would criticize and disagree with. Does that mean that we love the Lord any more or less than they do? Because we might have a different position in terms of the way the Spirit works now under the New Covenant. And again, I'm not talking about the extreme heretical stuff. I'm talking about Christians who actually have lives that demonstrate a love for Christ but hold to the charismatic gifts. How do we treat them? Are they all of a sudden less spiritual? Because... We disagree with them on that area. Some, our Presbyterian brethren, hold that the Sabbath is still to be honored on Sunday and that a lot of the stipulations and how the Sabbath is to be set aside is to be set aside for family worship and not worldly amusements. If someone holds to that conviction, would they hold someone else who doesn't have it as being less spiritual or somehow loving the Lord less or honoring him less? Paul would say, no, not at all. Whatever your commitment is in how you honor the Lord, make sure that it is a sincere expression of faith to the fullness of your knowledge and hold that before the Lord and let us not judge and condemn one another for those who hold true to a true gospel we're assuming. Okay, it doesn't mean that they love Christ any less than you or I do. It doesn't mean that they're any less seeking to live a life that is pleasing to to him, In fact, sometimes those who we condemn in those ways may have a life that is even more dedicated to Christ and wanting to honor Him. Even though their faith may be weaker in how they're understanding things, uh, they may have a more sincere, self-denying love that's demonstrated in their life. And so we want to be careful to accept one another. Again, it doesn't mean we don't have conversations and talk about these things, but it means that we don't condemn them and judge them in our heart, judge their spirituality. That's third. A fourth way is this. It's wrong to judge one another before having all the facts. And this is just another expression of making assumptions. We see a few examples of this in Scripture. In Genesis 38, 24, I'm just going to mention these. You see, Judah judged Tamar. Remember Tamar? He was supposed to give one of his sons to her to raise up children to the brother and he didn't do that and so she went out and she sinned granted she dressed up like a prostitute she had sex with Judah she got pregnant and then he found out that she was pregnant and he was going to condemn her and later she reveals that hey in fact it was you who got me pregnant and he said hey she was more righteous than I was in this instant he was going to judge her immediately right off the bat before finding out any information we see this famously in 1 Samuel 1:14. You remember Hannah was distressed of spirit. She was before the temple. She was praying to God and she was just praying silently and Eli said, "You drunk woman, you know, get out of here. Start get sober and serve the Lord." And she says, "No, no, I'm not drunk. I'm not one of those women. In my heart, I was just pouring it out before the Lord." But you see before addressing her, he automatically condemned her as a loose woman who was drunk and disobedient to the Lord. There's all kinds of examples and all kinds of ways uh, that we do that. Let me give you a modern example, actually. And Trish mentioned this yesterday, and it was so perfect uh, to what the point that's being made here. Uh, and here it is. I'll just read most of it to you. It's, it's short. Uh, this was actually on social media. We're going to get to social media, by the way, uh, in a few weeks. Let me just prime the pump here a little bit. Okay? Okay. But, but listen to what happened. It's been over a year since a photo of Molly Lensing taken without her permission first went viral. Still, the Illinois' mom of three says the image continues to haunt her. The photo was captured in a Colorado airport in 2016 where Linsing and her youngest daughter Anastasia, then two months old, were attempting to return home after visiting family. In the image, Linsing looks at her cell phone screen while her infant rests on a blanket on the airport floor. So that was the image that was taken. Linsing was quick, quickly mocked online as a woman who found her cell phone more interesting than her infant. And the photo was passed around with various judgmental quotes attached to it. One said this, Albert Einstein said, "...I fear the day that technology will take on our humanity." The world will be populated by a generation of idiots, one version of the photo read. But Linsing says not only her privacy was violated by the sharing of the image, but there is a great deal more to the story than the photo shows. She said, Linsing, We had an unfortunate luck we had the unfortunate luck of being stuck in the middle of the Delta computer shutdown, Linsing told today. Her flights were delayed and rebooked so many times that she spent more than 20 hours sitting in airports with a two-month-old. Two Anastasia had been held on or in her carrier for many hours. My arms were tired. She needed to stretch, said Linsing, and I had to communicate with all the family members wondering where the heck we were. Forgive me if that's offensive to some of you. I wasn't cleaning up there. Was, it was heck. Um A few months after her stressful travel experience, Linsing began seeing the image of herself circulating online. Once a few viewers identified her by name, she began receiving messages on Facebook. Some stood up for hers, but others berated her for being a terrible parent. I absolutely feel as though my privacy was violated, said Linsing, who works part-time as a pediatric nurse. I had recently started working on a labor floor and I was terrified of my coworkers or boss seeing the photos and co- photo and comments and believing that I should no longer work with infants. Thankfully that never happened. How often does that stuff happen? It's like a cancer and a disease on social media where everybody feels that they have the insight and the right to give an opinion and pass a judgment on things that they know nothing about and they destroy lives. That way, it's it's absolutely atrocious, and Christians are as guilty of that as the world is. Frankly, who live on social media, that's just a precursor um, for down the road. The point here, though, is that that is a demonstration of the sin of judging before we have all of the facts. It's another version of making assumptions about things that we simply do not know, and we need to be very careful. And we all have it, I'm speaking to myself as well, that tendency to do that, that we need to be aware of and guard against. That's another form of judging that Jesus is speaking against. Let me give one more, number five. It's wrong to judge merely from outward appearance. And again, you can see how there is some connection with all of these. It's wrong merely to judge from outward appearance. John seven twenty four says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And this is the Pharisees who were constantly condemning Jesus, but in doing so, they were ignoring his actual words and actions. It was a superficial judgment. And he's saying, don't judge according to appearance, but think about what you're doing. They, the leaders in this case, failed to put in the hard work of thinking through Scripture and seeking to make a fair and informed decision about both what Jesus did and the meaning of the Sabbath in that context. They had a superficial understanding of both. They had a superficial understanding of the Sabbath in their case, so in other words, Scripture, and they had a superficial understanding of Jesus. And so from that position, they condemned him. We saw an excellent example of this a couple of weeks ago with Simon the Pharisee judging the woman washing Jesus' feet. Remember that? Simon's there. He's with all his comrades, his boys, and they're having dinner. People are around. And the woman comes in. She obviously was an immoral woman who had a past and a history that was well known to them. She's crying. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's pouring on perfume. And Simon is just sitting there making assumptions about this woman and assumptions about Jesus, saying if he were a prophet, this man would know what kind of woman she was. And he had, was judge and jury all in one moment condemning that woman as a pious and a righteous religious leader. He was judging merely from outward appearance. He took no time to consider what else might be going on, no time to ask any question. And again, he had a superficial understanding of both Jesus and this woman. Consider for a moment how often you and I form judgments of people before we know anything about them but merely by externals. Merely by externals. We were at the mall last night for just a little bit, and this was on my mind, and I was just watching people and thinking, like trying to say, how would I view this person? I mean, it was, you know, a little bit different culture in some cases than, uh, you know, where I hang. But nonetheless, I was seeing how easy it would have been in my heart, and I was just doing a little self-evaluation of how easy it would have been in my heart to automatically assume where all of these people are from. In other words, their, their, or their condition or their wickedness or not because of how they're dressed and what they were doing. And I know nothing about those people. Nothing about those people. But we do that all of the time. Again, it's not to say there isn't a measure of reasonableness to be discerning, but I'm talking about forming settled opinions and negative attitudes towards an individual based solely on externals. That's what I'm talking about. Well, this is the negative side. Um, we're, we need to wrap it up here, and we'll address this again tomorrow more from the positive side. But let me at least mention, before we come into the Lord's table, the other half of the Lord's words here. He doesn't say, however, that we're not to make any discernments, any judgments. We're, we're to avoid those wrong kind of judgments that were already mentioned. But he does say this in our passage this morning of Matthew chapter 7, uh, You know, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Behold, the log is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We should be concerned to take the speck out of our brother's eye, but it's only when our heart is prepared to do so to the glory of God. And that's where we'll pick it up tomorrow or next Sunday, a week from now. So, first, the negative side. I was hoping to end a little more on the positive side of confrontation. But these are the warnings to us. We are to be discerning. We are to address sin in one another's life. But before we do that, we need to do a heart check in our own life. We need to make sure that the character of our own spiritual life demonstrates the poverty of spirit that marks one in the kingdom of God. The poverty of spirit over our own sin. We need to make sure, and I think this is a helpful way to say it. It's helpful for me is to say we need to be more concerned about our own sin and hate that more than we hate the sin in others. If we can say I get annoyed, I get provoked, I get bothered by what so-and-so is doing, what they said, and yet I find little provocation in my own conscience for my disobedience to the Lord, that should be a red flag that says there's a problem. There's a problem in my spirituality and my understanding of the gospel of grace. We should go to those ones when we do have that opportunity to do so with a deep sense of our own need of grace, our deep sense of our own failings and shortcomings, and realizing that we're going to that person in love to help them, not to condemn them. And those are the things that we'll talk about next week. But this is particularly a good reminder as we come into the Lord's table and remember our unity and love for one another that we are to have, and that we, the life that we share together is God's people in Christ. Let me pray, and then the men will come forward and bring the elements. Father, thank you for these warnings, and this morning, more the warning side, and looking at those places where we might disobey your command. Help us to be sensitive to that. Help us to be cautious, and, oh, Father, how, how easy it is for us sometimes to rationalize these, these things away or to minimize our own sin while we maximize the sin of others. But help us to be more like your faithful servant, the Apostle Paul, who said, I know that there's no good thing that dwells in me, that is within my flesh. He said, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Who lived with a deep and a profound sense of the love that he had received despite his own personal guilt. And he was able from that humble posture then to be a useful servant to you. And we want to do the the same. And so make us those who understand more deeply the gospel in our own lives uh, each day as we seek you, and, and then help us to be more useful to each other in the lives of our brethren. And now, as we come to your table, may we remember or examine our hearts and make sure that we don't have any of the wrong heart against a brother or a sister in the Lord any any violation of your command not to judge as we've considered this morning, that we don't have any unresolved relational conflict with someone, that we're not actively pursuing and intending to pursue reconciliation. Help us to be diligent in these matters, especially now as we come to your table. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.